0: plushcare.com slash weight loss this podcast is sponsored by bubble the babysitting app that helps you discover trusted local babysitters around you they say it takes a village to raise a child the reality in the 21st century is that most of us no longer live in a village and if we do our village doesn't get involved like they used to. Because being a parent is hard, and however good at it you are, you'll need a break at some point. Maybe to go out for dinner with your partner, to go for a run, or to have some uninterrupted time at your computer just to get to the bottom of your emails. And that's where Bubble is a lifesaver. It makes it easy for you to find amazing childcare whenever you need it. This clever app lets you plug into your social and community networks to find sitters trusted by your friends. You can review all available sitters and see which friends you have in common. Each sitter has their identity verified and background check before their profile goes live and every sit is tracked and insured. The best part is that you can pay your sitter easily and securely through the app at the end with no awkward fumbling for cash. So log on to Bubble. You can get more information at joinbubble.com or download the app. Just search Bubble Babysitting on App Store. And for £10 off your first booking, use the code PARENTHOOD. It's all capital letters, one word. Thanks to Bubble. Hello and welcome to The Parenthood. While being sick is a big part of childhood, I thought it would be interesting to ask the question of whether there is anything that we can do to boost our children's immunity. So with me today, I have pediatrician Dr. Sophie Nidamaya patramani who has spent her career treating children around the world and studying how to make them better. Sophie, thank you so much for coming to join us today. Well, thank
2: you so much for the invitation.
0: I mean, on the one hand, I think being a pediatrician is an amazing job. You're healing children, but you're also around six
2: children the whole time. Is that <laughs> quite hard for you or um it's actually a job that I really really love um because even though children can be sick at times they take it which with so much energy and they are so good about it and you know you might have a three-year-old have running a fever of 39 40 degrees and still he would run around in your office and play with the toys and and be completely up to speed so um and they're pretty good at getting better aren't they children yes I mean they do
0: (laughs) it's probably different than if you're working in geriatrics where it's just a little bit tougher because their bodies are new and they tend to work a little bit better than ours
2: exactly and you always you don't only work with the children but you also work with parents so you always work in a team and everyone's trying to make them feel better so and in the end they are better as you say Oh, good. I think it's
0: interesting to understand a little about the immune system before we start. I mean, children are notorious for picking up more bugs and viruses than um, us adults. Why is that?
2: It's really because the immune system of our children has to be trained and they have to be educated. It's just like they learn how to speak, they learn how to walk, and also their immune system has to learn how to work. And I like to think of the immune system as kind of our police force that we have inside ourselves. So the immune cells that we have are the brave police officers patrolling the borders and patrolling the streets and making sure that no one comes in and does any harm to us. Um, Now we are born with um, a very simple kind of immune system. Um, That's kind of the police officers that run the streets. They know a little bit about everything. They know they would be able to pick out someone who looks a bit harmful, um, but they don't know specifics of any crime. Um, So this is what babies are born with. And then once they grow older, they are exposed to all other kinds of diseases. They maybe get vaccinations. And so their immune system gets more specialized and they learn to fight more specific diseases. I see. And so I know that babies do inherit a little
0: bit of immunity from their mother through Mm -hmm. the placenta. And then obviously breastfeeding plays a big part, doesn't it, in terms of boosting their immunity, if that's possible?
2: Yes, because breast milk is this magic potion that also has a lot of um, enzymes and molecules that help the baby fight infection. And that's something that um, we just cannot provide with formula.
0: So obviously thinking about that, the, the idea of you know, their immune system needing to be educated and needing to be exposed to various bugs and bacteria and viruses in order to become stronger, it's presumably good for them to be exposed to
2: that. Yes, that's absolutely right
0: are we maybe guilty of keeping our houses too clean? I mean, I know that, you know, teaching antenatal classes, when people have their babies, I think it is kind of normal etiquette to wash your hands before you handle a newborn baby. And that's not because they can't cope with any illness, but it really is a pain in the neck to have that but is it potentially quite good to bring our children up in an environment that is not pristine that is not sprayed to an inch of its life with antibacterial spray but in order for their immune system to mature to expose them to a bit of dirt a bit of bacteria am
2: I right in thinking that yes I think what you're saying is you have to find the right balance so of course you shouldn't kind of let your baby or child play in the dirt and then they come home and they lick their dirty fingers because they might pick up any kinds of stupid things but um on the other hand yes you can be too clean around your baby and we've seen that children who've grown up in a very very clean environment they actually have a higher risk to develop allergies and um asthma so what is the
0: sort of ideal kind of balance you know do we do we get our children to wash their hands with antibacterial hand wash once they're sort of no longer in the baby stage or is sort of normal soap good enough?
2: So I think normal soap is good enough because um, what you also don't want to do is you don't want to um, kill the good bacteria that we have living in our skin because these bacteria protect us from other bad bacteria. Um, So I would also always opt for natural soaps.
0: And then, presumably, cleaning products. I mean, I, I, I remember furiously sort of going around with a kind of spray that looked quite scary in terms of how many millions of bacteria <laughs> it was killing. Is that necessarily a good thing, or should we be maybe using more natural cleaning products? You know, lemon as opposed to bleach, is, is, is that quite a good thing
2: yeah so again in terms of killing off all the bacteria that's really something that you don't want to do because you want to preserve the good ones and you want to preserve the ones that are not necessarily harmful but that again train our immune system um so i think um natural products are always better than the chemical killers and also there are some studies that have shown that if you use chemical um or, or toxic um Substances, then that might lead to the irritation of the respiratory system of Mm -hmm. your child. So it actually might make your child's allergies and asthma worse. Um, without you really wanting to do that.
0: Well, there's been a lot of talk about sort of air quality in our homes. I mean, we've previously been obsessed with it outside, but actually people saying that actually using room sprays and cleaning sprays is not doing much good in terms of the air quality of our exactly. house. Exactly.
2: And that's the kind of vicious circle that um, parents with children who have allergies are in. They are trying to keep the house clean because they want to get rid of the dust. They want their children to be well, and then they overdo it sometimes by using room sprays and actually make everything a bit worse. So I think we need to back off a little and, and find the right balance there.
0: Because, I mean, when I think back to when my children were babies, I remember being horrified about what they'd put in their mouth. And they have this <laughs> sort of instinct, don't they? That everything they have in their hand that goes to their mouth. And that's fine if it's a sort of toys of theirs or a chewing toy or something. But I remember once um, my son was in the park crawling around on the grass and he picked up a cigarette butt and put it in his mouth. And I thought, oh my god that's disgusting but i presumably there's some sort of evolutionary reason why they do that and is that maybe them giving themselves their their immune system the chance to sort of boost itself and go that was disgusting but actually now we know how to fight that disgustingness that you just put in your like another time i remember my son was licking the wheels of his buggy and (laughs) oh my god what's he gonna come he was fine and he has actually turned into a very healthy little boy now. Um, but is, is that potentially, you know, a, a sort of very primitive way of them boosting their own immune system? Mm,
2: it's a really nice side effect. I think they are really naturally curious. So they want to put everything in their mouth. They want to taste everything. And it seems that especially the texture and the taste of dirt seems to be very interesting to children. So I'm not sure if your children had the same, but there is a face for every child when they are around two or three years old, where they just put dirt into their mouth just because they like it and yeah. a lot of parents freak out about it but there's really not so many things to worry about I mean of course when you say cigarette butts it's maybe not the best choice <laughs> we're <laughs> not advocating again, what cigarette you do? Butts <laughs> <laughs> um, but on the other hand as you say there are a lot of bacteria in the dirt and some of them are good some of them are bad but everything they do is they train our children and if we look at this. I think we can embrace the benefits and, and be a bit relaxed about the rest.
0: I remember when Chiara, my sister, was at medical school, they showed a picture of a baby lying on the floor in a sort of, you know, stable of an animal stable. Obviously, mm-hmm. there weren't any animals treading on the baby. Um, but the, the, the lecturer said, you know, this is good for two reasons. For a start, a child on the floor can't fall off the floor, so it's better to put <laughs> them on the floor than on a surface that they can fall off. But secondly, exposure to dirt isn't a bad thing when they're little because it just helps that immune system. And
2: these are the revolutionary studies that we had in the 90s um, where people found out that children who grew up in the countryside around animals and on the farm, um, they actually developed a lot less allergies than children who grew up in the city in a very clean environment. And uh, this was groundbreaking. And from then on, we really started to understand more about what causes allergies and and what is the right balance between playing in the dirt and keeping it too clean
0: yeah i remember someone once said to me your first child eats dirt you take them to hospital your second <laughs> child eats dirt you wash their mouth out your third <laughs> child eats dirt and you're like do they even need dinner <laughs> And I actually, you do become much more relaxed. You know, I know yeah. the parents listening to us that have their first baby will be thinking, mm. oh, my God, I find this really, really difficult to listen to. But actually, you do get more relaxed. And, and in a way, maybe you're just getting more experienced and sort of understanding yeah. that, you know, this. And And that's essentially the idea behind vaccinations that you're giving the children's bodies a little bit of a nasty illness, you know, but not so much so that it can't tackle it, but it understands how because a lot of these things, once you've experienced that, once your body has experienced fighting that particular illness, Mm -hmm. it knows how to do it. If you've been exposed to a certain illness, you won't get it. Exactly. Yeah. And so I guess, you know, every cold and every kind of vomiting bug that your child has, it's not going to get that again. It's sort of banking up that immunity.
2: Exactly, it's you're you're alluding a little bit to the second child syndrome as well, and um, that's the other thing. You just cannot keep your children, especially when they are the second ones, from picking up anything wherever they have it from from nursery, from older siblings. Um, And you just need to relax a little bit about the fact that they they will pick up something and they will make it through it and it will actually make them healthier.
0: Is there any evidence to show that sort of second, third, fourth children are a little bit more healthier and a little bit more robust than their potentially mollycoddled older siblings?
2: Well, there is evidence that they pick up um, diseases a bit earlier in life, around three to six months, just because older sibling is bringing something home from nursery. And that actually makes them more robust once they enter nursery or reception class themselves. So first bonds are always a bit suffering from the clean home and the nice environment. And then once they enter the nursery or reception class, then it just hits them. Whereas the second one already made it through a lot of stuff.
0: Yeah. I mean, you mentioned animals and people, children growing up in farms tend to be a little bit healthier. I mean, I grew up with, I didn't grow up, but my children have grown up with dogs. And I remember always feeling a little bit unsure when my sort of, my my daughter had a rice cake that she was eating. And then she'd sort of reach down and the dog would have a little nibble. And then it would go back into her mouth. But that's not such a bad thing, is it?
2: No, absolutely not. And I mean, as long as animals live in our household, we share the same bacteria anyway. So the dog will run around and will lick at things and we will touch the chair that the dog licked and we will touch the food and then we will put it into our mouth. So we can't avoid it. But also our immune system is so smart that it will get used to it and will recognize the good bacteria that we picked up.
0: Isn't there some evidence to show that dogs' mouths contain less bacteria than our human mouths? Because our mouths are full of bacteria, aren't they?
2: Yes, and dog mouths are full of bacteria as well. Just a bit different. And as you say, just a bit fewer
0: yeah, because I know that one thing, you know, when the child drops, drops the dummy on the floor, a lot of parents then lick the dummy, but that's not a great thing, is it? Because our mouths are full of bacteria, or is it a good thing? Is it a good way of exposing them to that?
2: It's actually a good thing because, again, our parents, our children, because we, we kiss them, we cuddle with them, they are used to the bacteria that we have in our mouth and everywhere else anyway. So it's actually a better way to disinfect a dummy than kind of putting it into chemicals.
0: I mean, you mentioned we've established it's good now for children to get a little bit ill. Obviously, you don't want them really badly ill um, because that is sort of tough, but hopefully you're sort of um, building up your immunity. Um, what is normal in terms of coughs and colds and vomiting incidents, so sort of periods of time when your child is ill? What sort of normal would you say per year? I mean, you obviously see this a, a lot more than, mm-hmm. than everyone else. What, what's, what's your view on that?
2: So research says that if you have eight illnesses throughout the whole year then this is about the average and then if it goes a lot above that let's say 12 or 14 illnesses per year then that would be a hint that something might not be right so I always think that would be a good indicator to contact your GP and just have a look if there's any nutritional deficiency for example or if there's anything else that you would need to look into to boost the immune system.
0: And presumably children as their immune system matures get less ill so this is presumably kind of normal for sort of one two three four but as they develop towards the age of 10 that should go down.
2: Yeah absolutely so that's really toddlers and any child starting daycare so if you have a toddler and he was looked after by a nanny until he goes to reception class. Then probably he will pick up a lot of things
0: so obviously you know first thing on the list in terms of boosting our children's immunity is not being afraid to expose them to illnesses and to bacteria and to dirt and all of that obviously there are other things that we can do as well so vitamins is one thing giving their children vitamins is one thing um, Mm -hmm. that a lot of parents do I remember my father who's quite cynical doctor saying to me if you have a balanced diet all vitamin pills do is give you very expensive pee and (laughs) (laughs)
2: what's your view on this (laughs) (laughs) i tend to agree um i have to say the only vitamin that i'm quite enthusiastic about is vitamin d just because we live inside most of the times and vitamin d is known as the sunshine vitamin so we really only produce it ourselves when we are exposed to sunshine and that's at least two hours per day and i don't think that any one of us really reaches that so nhs and public health england they recommend vitamin D substitution to anyone during the winter time and to all toddlers um, until the age of four um, throughout the whole year. Okay and um, what
0: does vitamin D do for us? What would a person deficient in vitamin D suffer from?
2: Mm -hmm. So vitamin D is a really know-it-all, do-it-all vitamin. It's, it's amazing. It helps our children to grow. It helps our babies for their brain development. But most importantly, it also supports our immune system by fighting um, especially respiratory tract infections. Um, so there are loads of studies out there that have shown that um, if we take vitamin D during the wintertime, um, our risk for having coughs, cold, bronchitis, all these things goes significantly down.
0: And so when you're choosing what vitamin to take, is there a big difference between the expensive ones and the cheaper ones? Or is vitamin D, vitamin D? And that's bog standard, the same thing.
2: Vitamin D is vitamin D, really. You just have to make sure that you take the right amount of vitamin D um, and in that some of the supplements vary. Um, and the recommended dose for children would be 400 units per day. And so
0: we're talking children, what, under 12, under 16? Until the age of five. Until the age of five. And thereafter, they should still be taking vitamin D, um, but just not a, a higher dose or?
2: Um, they could take the same dose yeah. um, during the winter time. So yeah. that would be the recommendation then of NHS and Public Health England. Okay,
0: perfect. And other vitamins? Focus instead on a balanced diet? Is that <laughs> what they <laughs>
2: I think um, if you think about a balanced diet then you get pretty much everything that you need um, there are a lot of people who absolutely believe in vitamin C when they get a cold but if you look at how much vitamin C we really need during the day and that is for a toddler of maybe three years that would be um, fifty milligram per day mm-hmm. um, and you look how much vitamin C an orange contains, then mm-hmm. that's already 70 milligram. Mm-hmm. So if you think about your diet and you mm-hmm. think about your daily required intake, then you meet it with, with a normal diet.
0: Yeah. yeah. And you presumably absorb those vitamins better if you're getting them through a healthy diet rather than exactly. through a sort of sweetie vitamin thing.
2: Exactly. And um, maybe some other nutrients that I think about in a balanced diet is always iodine, folate and zinc, because they also support the immune system. And that is something that um, you find in dairy, for example, eggs, meat. Um, so if you're a vegan or vegetarian, or if you, for example, have a child that um, has a lactose intolerance or, or cannot drink milk for any other reasons, then that is something that you definitely should discuss with your dietician. Mm. and presumably then if your child is
0: going through a bout of illness and they just you know they just stop eating don't they you know you mm. can often be sort of a week where they just don't really eat that much they might suck on a rice cake then presumably it might be worth seeing if they'll have a vitamin supplement because at least if they they can't eat yeah. they're getting something yeah
2: and I mean also you you don't do much harm with a vitamin supplement and it gives you the feeling that you're doing something nice for your child so the positive attitude and kind of being nice and reassured about it, that helps tremendously in, in healing. There's
0: a lot of talk in the media right now about gut health um, mm-hmm. and the idea that the gut, our gut, is the sort of brain of our body. And if the gut is healthy and contains lots of good bacteria, healthy bacteria, it has a huge effect on our sort of overall well-being. Is this something that you're getting excited about, This <laughs> the, the conversation around gut health?
2: Yes, absolutely. I'm completely enthusiastic about what we found out in the past few years the the things that have emerged the the gut brain axis how much the gut influences how we feel and um also the influence that the gut has on developing allergies and developing obesity it's just fantastic what we're finding out and it feels like we just tapped into a completely new world that is discovered a little bit every day
0: yeah so what can we do to promote good gut health
2: so mainly it would be important to think about having a big variety of different gut bacteria in your gut so we know um, that the more depleted your gut bacteria variety is um, the higher is our risk for developing diseases such as allergies asthma Um, so the best thing you can really do about it is eating plenty of fiber that's what we understand from the research at the moment I mean, breastfeeding
0: is also really good, isn't it, in terms of cultivating mm-hmm. good bacteria. I was talking to a gastroenterologist and he seemed to think that the the way forward in terms of kind of maintaining good gut health is not necessarily to take probiotics, but to take tailored probiotics because all mm-hmm. our gut um, makeup is all slightly different. Mm-hmm. And he says, as far as he can see, the only time we're getting tailored probiotics is through breastfeeding because everyone's
2: breast milk makeup is slightly different. Yes. I mean it's it's a magic potion, isn't it? It's it's just fantastic. So if you think about supplementing gut bacteria, you think about prebiotics and probiotics. So prebiotics are substances that we cannot necessarily digest but our gut bacteria feed on so that would be fiber for example or kind of small sugar molecules and breast milk is just abundant in it um, and then the other thing is probiotics and that is just actual bacteria um, that we find in breast milk but mm-hmm. also for example kefir, yogurt kombucha fermented foods fermented foods exactly um, and these are bacteria that will stay in our gut and they will support the gut bacteria that we already have there
0: yeah and these things are becoming much more widely available and I definitely encourage your children to, to, to try them because actually mm-hmm. the kombucha it is a bit of an odd taste but it's actually a very
2: nice taste yeah and absolutely. a lot of children are
0: very happy to drink that instead of apple juice yeah. and there's
2: and you don't have to be worried about giving something that is not safe because we know that the bacteria that you find in these fermented foods um they are safe for your children the same goes for probiotic supplements. I mean, I know that the research out there is still not quite conclusive if they are really helpful as a supplement during the winter time, for example, to fight infections. But I always tell parents when I see them it's it's just worth a try, and if it's not working for you, then it's not working for you. but there are parents out there, and it just they it feels that it's working for them.
0: So this idea of our gut harboring very important, healthy bacteria, I think for me, is very persuasive. Are there any other parts of the body where good bacteria live or is it just the gut?
2: <laughs> so bacteria live with us everywhere. Um, they live on our skin and they chase germs away that we don't want to have. They keep our skin intact, our skin barrier. They produce substances that protect our skin um, and they live yeah, everywhere else as well.
0: And is there anywhere else that they're particularly valuable? I mean, I I was hearing something about sort of skin biome and actually very often lots of use of sort of, you know, constantly scrubbing yourself with soap Mm -hmm. isn't necessarily a good thing because our skin naturally creates this perfect environment in which to thrive and scrubbing it away with loads of um, strong astringent Mm -hmm. soap isn't very good for it.
2: Yeah, exactly. So if you think of um, teenagers suffering from acne, for example, they tend to vigorously clean their faces because they want the acne to go away but really what they do is they promote the growth of bacteria that make the acne worse whereas they take away the good bacteria that are very sensitive to all these cleaners and that might actually protect you so a lot of doctors would tell someone who suffers from acne to just stop all the cleaning products and kind of support the skin biome to protect your skin again. Mm. Because, you know, there's the idea
0: too that, you know, we all wash our hair quite frequently and because it, it gets sort of dirty. Before. Mm-hmm. But actually, if you stop washing your hair completely, it sort of cleans itself, doesn't it? Exactly. I mean, yeah. I never wash my dog's coat, and her, dog, <laughs> uh, her coat never gets greasy and, and sort of smelly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My husband was actually um working he goes and lives with people that live in the middle of nowhere and he lived with this lady who insisted on washing her hair with her own urine. <laughs> and oh, he wow, did okay. say that his hair felt amazing. <laughs> I was like, You're not gonna do that in my house. <laughs> That's one thing in the yeah, woods.
2: It might be the urea that you found in the that you find in the urine and you actually also find it in a lot of skin creams. Do you? Yes. So how interesting. You know, have the body heal itself. Well, and
0: you know, our bodies are so sophisticated. They're mm-hmm. kind of way, they're way cleverer than we are understanding. Isn't yeah. that true? I mean, what interests me, you know, when we talk in the in the bump class about how when babies are born, they're covered with this vernix, which is now known to be so good for your baby's mm-hmm. skin. Like we can't create anything like that, can we? Or, or colostrum, you know, with it, man can't recreate anything quite as wonderful no. or
2: beneficial. Not that we know of. I mean, we're trying to understand breast milk and we're just discovering every day more substances that make breast milk so unique and it's a real struggle for the formula companies to kind of reproduce that because it is so difficult to find substances to to kind of Imitate these effects,
0: but that's also re- really reassuring that the formula companies are very sort of dedicated. Because obviously there will be people listening that haven't been able to breastfeed their mm-hmm. baby for one reason or another, and I think, God, being a mother, you're racked with guilt anyway. Yeah. Um, that at least, if you can't breastfeed your baby, you know, it's not like you're feeding them something that's really terrible. It's something you know in which a lot of care and money has gone into exactly. creating something that is as good as it possibly can and be, and it's
2: work in progress, and it's something that is considered really, really safe, and that undergoes a lot of regulations. So I think if you can't breastfeed, then it is a safe and it is a good alternative.
0: In terms of gut health, one of the things I know isn't great for gut health is taking antibiotics yes. um, because that sort of tends to destroy all the bacteria, whether it's good or bad in your gut. And obviously there are some situations in which, you know, you're weighing up that risk benefit and actually you do need to take antibiotics because otherwise the risk is greater. Mm-hmm. But obviously, I mean, do you think antibiotics are potentially oversubscribed? People take them a little bit too
2: soon? Yes, I think. And, and I think the reason might be that now we want to have a quick fix for things. So we feel that if we just take the next pill and if we just take the chemical stuff, then that will help us and that will make us feel better. When really, if you have a normal cold, it will just stay around for a week if you take the antibiotics or no Mm, mm. and
0: presumably too the more people take antibiotics the more the resistance to them increases so you're not only just destroying your own gut bacteria but if in two months time you need to take them for actually a really significant infection which they will cure they might not be as effective
2: exactly and that's the other problem and also some people they take antibiotics for two or three days and then they feel better and they stop them without really having cured the problem and then that's really when you create resistances and when you make things actually worse it's really interesting what you say
0: about rest because I think that is a real problem for us in the 21st century there's such pressure and I see it the whole time on people to be living their lives at 100 miles an hour to be super productive and you know we're constantly stimulated by screens we're multitasking the whole time and I'm sure that's having a profound effect on our mental health as a generation mm. but also this idea that if you get ill the best cure often is just to rest. Yeah. And I know that might be inconvenient. And I know that might be that you have to cancel meetings and it might even be a bit boring, but sometimes that's all you can do. Mm-hmm. And, and obviously what, you know, that must be quite frustrating advice to hear from a doctor because they expect you to ma- hand out the magic medicine.
2: Exactly. But it's sometimes it's a real struggle sometimes. And I also understand working parents, if you think about what I said earlier about the average Amount of infections per year for a toddler would be eight infections, which is potentially staying home with your child for four days or longer every single time. Then this is a lot of work that you have to miss out on. So I do understand the pressure of of wanting this magic potion or to wanting to have this magic pill, um, but as you say, it it sometimes just takes rest and it takes a few days, and you need to give your body. the the time and the rest to recover as well.
0: Yeah. What about alternative treatments like sort of echinacea? What about sort of herbal remedies? Mm -hmm. Is there
2: any evidence base behind those? So evidence is coming up and that's also something that I'm really, really happy about. I think herbal medicines have been a bit the orphan drugs of our times because there is no there's no one really backing them up and there's no one conducting good trials around them to see why they are effective and if they are effective. Because
0: no one owns their patent and no one stands there to make money out of them.
2: Exactly. But um, I'm, I was quite happy to see that NHS just recently changed their guidelines around acute coughs. And they said the first thing you should actually do is take honey.
0: okay honey in what form like dissolved in some milk or some water or yes
2: as ever you wish it so you can take a a spoonful of pure honey um you can dissolve it in tea you can dissolve it in lemon water these are the recommendations that they make they also recommend echinacea because you um, picked up on it for children who are older than 12 years old just because there are no um, there are no other um, substances for them that they would be safe if they are younger than 12 year olds
0: and how would you take that echinacea? Would you take it once the cough has or once the cold has started, or would you take it preventatively?
2: So you would rather take it once the cough has started, because it has been shown that the amount of episodes that you have um, of cough um, are reduced, and also the number of days that you feel ill are reduced. Mm.
0: And that may be that the fact that your brain knows that you're taking something, and people like to be doing something proactive <laughs> to make you feel better. But I mean, I've certainly found anecdotally. From my experience, echinacea does make a difference. I don't know whether that's my brain telling me that I'm feeling better or whether I am actually feeling better. But either way, I guess if it works, it's it's worth taking. Or maybe it's a
2: combination of both. You don't know. Yeah. Yeah. But we do know, for example, in the case of honey, that it does contain antibacterial substances, for example. So we do know that there is something there that's helping. We just cannot pinpoint to the exact substance of what is helping which.
0: Do you know, I've started washing my face with honey. I have really oh, sensitive wow. okay. skin. I'm really mm-hmm. prone to ac- to eczema and it's made a huge difference. Mm-hmm. But I, the reason I started it was because, you know, I give my kids honey and their yogurt in the morning and I'd often sort of be wiping my hands of it. And my hands would always feel really nice afterwards. I thought... I'll just try it on my face. <laughs> my daughter's really cross. She's like, Mommy, why are you stealing our honey? I was like, it's, it's a hell of a lot less expensive yeah. than the uh, expensive face washes that I was
2: using. Yeah, there are so many easy fixes, isn't it? <laughs> the only thing with honey that you have to kind of look after is that you don't buy cheaper honey that is um, mixed up with any glucose syrups because then obviously the potency of the honey will go down, but to use natural products. So what are you looking for? Does it have to say on the
0: product, this is actually mixed with glucose? You just look at the ingredients, do you? Yeah, sometimes it says that. Yeah, so it says
2: glucose syrup. um,
0: Yeah, okay. So sort of natural honey is probably mm -hmm. what to to look I hadn't even realized that people would not sell honey that was part, you know, glucose Mm syrup. Diet is obviously really important, isn't mm-hmm. it, in terms of maintaining sort of a, a healthy immune system. Are there any specific things we should be trying to get mm-hmm. our children to e- eating? Because I mean, I really struggle getting my children to eat a variety of things. Mm-hmm. Um, but what? What? How important is diet in maintaining our, our a good healthy immune system?
2: Diet is important, and I think the reassuring thing is that it's okay not to have a big variety in your diet. It's just a bit the question of what ingredients you will choose for your diet. So I think um, I'm a huge fan of dark bitter vegetables such as broccoli kale because they are a really good combination of vitamin C, micronutrients like folate. They contain some iron. So if you have to choose one veg, I think take broccoli mm-hmm. um, because it it contains just a lot of different things.
0: Yeah. And obviously broccoli you can do in a sort of variety of different ways. Actually, I made a broccoli soup for my children. But, you know, I put a bit of milk in. I put a bit of butter. I put a potato in. So it wasn't that sort of really broccoli taste. Uh, It was a little bit easier for them to palate because they're not big broccoli fans. But at least they're eating that broccoli.
2: Exactly. And they're nice finger food too. So you can just take the florets and steam them and take them on the go.
0: Yeah. Or dip them in something. You know, dip them in some hummus if that makes them sort of feel a little bit easier.
2: Yeah. And hummus is good as well because it contains chickpeas. And there you go again with iron and other proteins and and good micronutrients.
0: And what about, I mean, other things like, I mean, sleep is presumably important for our overall health. Does it
2: have an impact on our immune system? Absolutely. And I think we realize ourselves when you, when we have stressful times at work and we don't get a lot of good quality sleep, also because we lie awake at night, we're worried about things, Um We feel tired and we feel sick and we're so much more prone to picking up something. And the same absolutely goes for our children as well.
0: Mm. I mean I definitely find that sometimes when I feel I'm coming out down with something I'll go to bed at literally 8 30 and mm-hmm. I'll sleep really well for 12 hours and I'll kind of wake up a new woman and I suppose being on the ball if you feel your children are getting a bit tetchy just trying to put them to bed a little bit earlier yeah. and seeing if that I mean by and large I've sort of seen specialists say our children sleep slightly less nowadays than they they did a generation mm-hmm. before and I'm sure that's to do with there's a lot more pressure on children there's yeah. clubs and there's school and there's homework. but there's also screens which aren't very good at promoting sleep so I guess just as parents thinking about the amount of hours that your children are sleeping looking at them are they are they really struggling to wake up in the morning when the alarm goes off if so do they need to be in bed half an hour earlier or even an hour earlier or even one night a week they're in bed an hour earlier
2: yeah and I think what you're mentioning is really important that every child has their individual need of sleep so you would say that on average a baby under 12 months for example sleeps around 14 hours and then a toddler would sleep around 12 hours but you know there are a lot of toddlers who are perfectly fine with only eight hours of sleep and then there are the other ones who just need a little bit longer so I think it's a good idea to tune in with your child and have a look what mm. their needs are.
0: And I suppose also not setting in stone that bedtime, like bedtime is at nine, mm-hmm. because actually I find some weeks I'm just more tired and I need to go to bed earlier. And presumably that then translates to our children. Exactly. So it's more sort of teaching them to recognize when they're tired or maybe one night a week, just thinking I'm really going to invest in myself and go to sleep a little bit earlier and start yeah. that sort of wind down thing a little bit earlier, especially if they are, if they are mm. getting ill.
2: And if you think about prevention of infections, then making sure that your child gets a lot of sleep during the winter that's I think one of the best things you can do
0: do we as humans need more sleep during the winter
2: it's not necessary during the winter but I think just in winter you you have a higher risk of picking up something so if you want to be extra safe during the flu time then that would be a good good thing to do and sleep is free and gosh it's free time for adults (laughs) too isn't
0: it so (laughs) we shouldn't need to be persuading our listeners. Exercise is obviously really important, too. I mean, mm-hmm. I definitely feel that I sleep better when I exercise. I know that I feel better emotionally when I exercise. Presumably, it's good at sort of promoting that, um, uh, your your immune system uh, as well. As, am I right? Is there evidence behind that?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So you're, you're mentioning two things here. One is the emotional well-being. Yeah. And if we're happy and if we um, are not stressed, then our immune system feels better. Yeah. And that has something to do with the cortisol that we produce when we, um, when we are stressed. And that suppresses our immune system and that makes us feel worse. So this is when we have a, str- a, lot, of, a lot of stress at work, then we get ill more easily. Um, so kind of exercising, feeling happy, um, that makes us feel better. And getting out
0: to stores ideally to do some exercise. Yes,
2: exactly. That's the other thing. So being outdoors... Um, getting rid of all the germs that we picked up inside, um, having fresh air, um, being away from the dry air that we have um, because of the heating inside that's a big thing as well
0: Perfect, well and uh, you know for children that's obviously not joining a gym class but even going for a bike around the park or (laughs) going for a walk or climbing a tree or just having Uh a game of tag outside, it doesn't need to be necessarily hours and hours of it but a little bit every day is really walking to school.
2: And even if your little one is ill A walk outside maybe not making him walk around or run around but maybe having him kind of cuddle up in the pram um it's it's really really helpful and beneficial because
0: people are scared about going outside when they Mm. especially when they've got a cold there's this idea that being cold gives you a cold and being (laughs) cold makes your cold worse. I mean, that's absolutely
2: not true, is it? That's absolutely not true, no. I mean, there are some reasons why we are more prone to pick up something in the winter because the viruses are around, because the viruses feel better when they are in colder air. Um, But really, the reason why we pick them up is because we are around other people and we are around more people insides than outsides, really. So don't be afraid to go outside. It's, it's a beneficial thing. It's really a good thing.
0: So your child did not get a cold for swimming in a cold pool. Your child got a cold because they came in contact with someone who has a virus. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> and if your child is has got a cold, actually wrapping them up nice and warm, mm-hmm. but taking them outside for a short period of time, either in their buggy or for a little sort of gentle walk is going to be a good thing as opposed to a bad thing.
2: Exactly. Or just, you know, having a break on the balcony, opening the window, just getting this dry air out and getting a bit of moist air inside is really helpful for our airways
0: okay good well that because that is a big myth that is perpetuated by lots and lots and lots of people i know (laughs) it
2: drives me crazy as well
0: (laughs) we need to rebrand the cold exactly as a virus (laughs) because people think it is to do with the cold um, okay, just a few scenarios that I thought I'd just ask you while I have mm-hmm. uh, you here. There's an outbreak of norovirus in your school. Are mm-hmm. you going to do anything different in terms of trying to prevent your child from
2: getting it? What would you do? So i definitely talk to my child about washing hands. So, I think that's something that I would encourage more during times of outbreaks of any kind of virus, especially norovirus, because it's a really painful one to have yourself. Mm. Um, and highly contagious, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. So, after touch, before putting your hands into your mouth, before eating, um, after touching any surfaces, especially after going to the bathrooms, um, you have to wash your hands. And ideally, you would dry your hands either with your own towel at home. Um, or with a paper towel, you would just use the blow dry.
0: Yeah, yeah. And if there is a child, because often there isn't a blow dry and there's a sort mm. of towel, you know, wiping them on their trousers, is that kind of better than doing a sort of communal towel wipe?
2: Yeah, so it would still be better. Probably the norovirus might already be sitting on the trousers, but... <laughs> might it might not whereas in the towel you will for sure find it
0: yeah and i suppose also discouraging them from putting their fingers in their mouth the whole time which yeah. you know children do they you know suck their thumb but if i suppose if you can explain it to them just please try and not put your fingers in the mouth try not to eat your food with your fingers use your knife and fork exactly yeah That's really important and then obviously the school are kind of quite good at saying to people if your child has had vomiting and diarrhea to stay mm. away from school but it's got to be
2: for 48 hours doesn't it since it's the far- last episode exactly so it's 48 hours after the last episode of so diarrhea it's not
0: that you know your child vomited in the night but they're fine in the morning so they can go to school because mm. mommy quite frankly needs to go to work it you know <laughs> exactly it is really There we important. go with the struggle again yeah. yeah quite important how about is there I mean we've talked about a lot of the things we can do but is there anything specific you do to try and prevent this your, make your child a bit more resilient to getting colds
2: yeah I think the the points that we talked about is getting enough sleep Mm. um taking a vitamin d supplement um making sure that you have a balanced diet um i think these are really the things that i would encourage the most.
0: Yeah. Well, it's interesting that diet is very much a sort of theme running through this sort of overall health. And, you know, Mm. it makes us healthier and strong. And this is kind of part of your venture. (laughs) So you've created a a baby food company. Do you want to just tell me a bit about why you created uh, what you've created and Mm. and why it's
2: different? So we created um, Little Tummy about one and a half years ago. And the reason we founded the company is that we found that the commonly available baby food in the supermarkets really doesn't reflect on our preferences of what we would like to eat. And it also doesn't reflect on what babies actually should be eating. So I saw a lot of parents in the practice that I used to work at and they asked me what kind of baby food brand I would recommend. And I could really not recommend any because the problem with them is um, baby food is highly heat processed. So what it does, it prolongs the shelf life so you can keep the baby food up to two years in your shelf. So some baby food is older than your baby. <laughs> <laughs> but on the other hand, it destroys all the nice micronutrients, the vitamins, the fiber, the authentic taste and texture. And um, I mean, if you've ever tasted one of the pouches yourself, then, then you will see that it really doesn't taste like what it claims on the outside. Um, so I was really happy when my co-founder Nadine approached me and she said, look, I have this really innovative um, processing technique with cold pressure, um, similar to what you use for juices at the moment, which kind of kills off all the bacteria, so the food will be safe. Um, But on the other hand, you will preserve all the micronutrients, the vitamins, the fiber, and the food really does taste as if you just made it yourself. Um, So that was a big opportunity for me to bring out healthy food to parents' doorsteps. And we've worked on developing the recipes since then, um, which meet all the nutritional requirements. So we do use a lot of vegetables. We use a lot of pulses, lentils, um, and we're going to launch in April. So it's really exciting for Fantastic. us.
0: Fantastic. Well, that's. I mean, I know from my experience when my children were little, I, I did make as much of food as I could, but there were times when I couldn't and there were times mm. that I needed to give myself a break. And you're right, there was some of the stuff, especially the stuff with protein in, I found actually really disgusting mm-hmm. and I remember thinking oh why did I spoil him with all this homemade food I should have just given him <laughs> this processed food from from day one but that's obviously completely the wrong sentiment so
2: yeah it's so important to get our babies used to authentic taste from the very beginning so if your baby understands that broccoli, kale, veggies, pulses, lentils, fruit is just something that we eat in the family and they know the taste from the very beginning then this is something that they will just readily accept mm. into their older ages. And and probably your children don't have a problem with making healthy food choices until now
0: well no they they're pretty good. they eat pretty healthy. I think we all eat pretty healthy as a, mm-hmm. as a family, and you sort of model that behavior on your children. Um, I'm struggling with the variety because they love mm-hmm. like poached chicken and rice and lentils, <laughs> which is really not that bad, but that's yeah. kind of all they eat but um, yeah this, I was reading somewhere to, um that you know ideally, you should have introduced every taste there is by the time your child's a year old, yeah that's um, because they right. can sort of deal with it, yeah. and then they're much more bolder because you know a lot of children just only want that same food that they've had again and again they're Mm. not very adventurous when it comes to to tasting and
2: it's something that we call neophobia in child development so it means that um, children once they turn one year old they are afraid of new things because they learn what it is to be in an environment that they know and that they feel safe in and they know that things that are unfamiliar might be unsafe so it's a natural reaction and anything that we introduce to them before they turned a year old just kind of goes into the world of the known to them.
0: So you've got this window of opportunity which mm-hmm. you have to use. Yeah.
2: On the other hand, we do like sweet taste from the very beginning. So a child will, a baby will always prefer eating a banana over eating broccoli. Um, but if we're just persistent and we try hard enough and often enough, then a baby will eventually accept a more bitter taste.
0: Well, it is. I mean, I do find with the sugar, you know, you wean yourself off sugar and you need it much less. Whereas mm. if you're used to eating lots of sugar, you crave it much more. And I suppose when you've got a baby, you've got ultimate control. They can't open up the drawer. <laughs> they can't go to the news agent and buy themselves a Kit Kat. Yeah. You know, so you have this opportunity to be able to monitor how much sugar they eat and mm-hmm. sort of give that kind of good investment. And listen, when they are eight, they are going to go trickle treating and <laughs> eat their body weight in sweets. And that's sort of part and parcel of being a parent. But at least when you've got that control, you might as well make the most of it, I Exactly.
2: And I think the most important thing is to know that it's okay that they do trick and treat. They shouldn't do it every single day, but it's okay to treat yourself from time to time because that's what we do, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. We all fall off the wagon at some (laughs) stage. And as long as we then
0: have a healthy week after an unhealthy week, that's probably not such a bad thing. Um, Thank you so much. So um, Little Tummy, where can people find out more about what you're doing?
2: Uh, The best is to have a look on our website, littletummy.co. Okay. And we also have a blog and you can find all kinds of information around healthy diet for your baby there as well.
0: Yeah, well I've read some of your articles and they're really good. <laughs> which is exactly why I got you to come along today. Thank so Thank you. And thank, thank you so
2: much for having me.
0: That's a pleasure. It's been so great talking to you. So illuminating. Um <laughs> and uh, I feel really positive actually. I know that we sort of ended the flu season, but you know, it'll be around <laughs> uh, before I know it. So thank you so much. Thank you all for listening to another episode of The Parenthood. Please don't forget to subscribe. Rate and review us and do spread the word amongst your friends but in the meantime i hope we've given you some food for thought thank you for your time and from sophie and me goodbye
1: planning for your next trip